Let me tell you a story that I'm not very proud of. The first time I tried going to college, I had come out of a high school that was um, renowned for its men's volleyball program. We were a little Christian school, and somehow we had had this brilliant coach who decided to build this program, and we were in the middle, when I was in high school, of what became an almost 12-year undefeated league winning streak, which to this day, as I understand, is the longest league winning streak of any high school sport of any high school ever in Canada. And so I felt like I was part of this program, and I had these amazing teammates. Um, they won all kinds of awards, and people who came out of our school have gone on to play on Olympic programs and play for the best schools in the country. And I first attended a, a college um, whose program has now gone on to be the number one volleyball program in the country. And I was the little guy, so I played, you know, defensive specialist before anybody even knew what libero was. Um, so this is how far back in time we were. And I felt this challenge, this opportunity. I was going to go to this school, and I was going to walk on and try out and try to make the team. And uh, I worked harder at that probably than I had at anything else before. And then at the end of trials, the coach pulls me into his office and says, I have a spot for you on this team. But I'm going to be honest with you. I've seen other kids come out of your program, and to be perfectly honest, they haven't always performed at what I would have thought they should have. In fact, I had some attitude issues. So I need to know from you if you're actually all in on this. I told him I needed the weekend to think about it before I'd really commit. And then the gravity of what was going to happen then sunk in of expectations that would climb and schedules that would get filled. And I had these friendships and activities that I was involved in in the weekend that were unbecoming a disciple of Christ. And I realized in that moment that I actually liked them better than the potential future that stood in front of me as a college athlete. And I went into his office on Monday and I made up a lie. And I told him that since I was a little kid, my knees had been bad and I was worried that I wouldn't be able to perform. So instead of letting him down later, I would just do it now. And I turned around and I walked out. I went on to get kicked out of college that year. And um, as well as my home and watched a whole lot of different things in my life unravel. You ever heard the expression, better the devil you know than the devil you don't? I have a new one for you. I think often we live by this. Better the devil we know than the Jesus we don't yet. I think as soon as we think about the possibility that expectations could rise for us in life, we kind of cower. And I realize that all the best opportunities that I've missed in life have not because I wasn't capable or wasn't able it's because I was afraid that if we raised the bar, I realized I was more afraid of success than I was of failure. I was more afraid that someone might begin to expect things of me, so I just never stepped into that space. And I think a lot of us are actually holding on to our sins and our shortcomings and our anxieties more often as a security blanket than actually as a tool of the evil one. What if in your own life, there's still a place where your life is practically saying, better the devil I know than the Jesus I don't yet. And I am learning that every day still I'm waking up and there is an aspect and an element to the size and the scope and the power of the risen Christ that I still don't know. 
but he keeps calling me forward into it. And I'm learning that this is where faith is found, stepping into those spaces. The passage I want to walk through with you today as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John comes in chapter 5. I want to do what we did yes, or last week and just sort of walk through this text. I want to point out some things in it. This is a remarkable passage in Scripture, unlike, unlike any other. And I want to show you why. And I want to ask you today what it speaks to you. It's from John chapter 5. Sometime later, okay, so here's our key words right off the bat. And the passages before this we've had like on the next day, on the next day, and then on the third day, and then quickly, and then immediately, and there's sort of this torrent pace that makes us believe it happened in a very quick period of time. And all of a sudden now we get this kind of verbal cue that sometime later. And a few things begin to switch in chapters 5 to 7, that there's this movement that takes place back and forth between Judea um, and Galilee, and it kind of spins back and forth in between, whereas the other Gospels are often arranged geographically, this one sort of speeds through back and forth. And as this goes, opposition begins to build. What we saw is uh, personal and intimate interactions with the woman at the well and with Nicodemus and with Jesus calling his disciples, and now we sort of see the corporate scale of Jesus' ministry as he begins to go much, much more public. And he takes this into the heart um, of, of power in Jerusalem. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now you can see in your, in your Bible, some of you may have different translations, and you've seen in the past there's sort of this insertion of these verses down below, which I included here as a footnote. Um, our oldest and best manuscripts don't have this, and it's believed that this has sort of been inserted later on in history as a parenthetical statement for those who would have no longer seen the Jerusalem temple after it was destroyed in 70 AD and that whole area. And they wouldn't have been familiar with the geography, which is now has since been unearthed archaeologically. Um, but just so that you know the tradition and why he was gathered here, um, the other way would say it would be, and they waited for the moving of the waters. You see, his pool was fed by um, either two pools or two springs, and it would kind of at times bubble up, and it was an intermittent timing when this would happen. It wasn't scheduled, it wasn't planned, nobody was pulling levers, and so the water would stir, and the belief was that there was a, a magical therapeutic movement in this. The greater, broader world later on would refer to this and dedicate this pool to Asclepius, the goddess of healing, um, and here the belief was that the angels would stir the water, and so the first person who'd be able to get in would receive healing, there's a ministry in our area called Bethesda Christian Counseling. It's named after this text. And in particular, the question that comes at the end of this, one of the most perplexing questions that Jesus ever asks somebody, do you want to get well? Now, I would think this would be a rather offensive question. If I were to walk up to somebody who had been paralyzed for a very long time and ask them, would you like to get well? It's almost an insulting question, isn't it? Do you want to get well? This is a question I want all of us to hear inside of us this morning. Do you want to get well? See, when I was trying out for that team, I actually didn't want to get well. 
And there are places in all of our lives where we still take sin and we take our, our sin management habits and we take our coping mechanisms and our brokenness and we deal with that instead. We don't really want to get well. I think if we're perfectly honest with ourselves, we love our sin more than we like the possibility at times of being healed in Christ. We'll say all the right Christian language, but at the end of the day, our actions betray our words and we basically demonstrate before God that we don't want to get well. That we really do believe that whatever carnal need inside of us is satisfied when we reach out for that sin or that pattern or that habit again and again and again is a testimony before God. It is a rejection of Him that we don't actually want to get well. When all the healing and all the medications, everything we would need for the world is laid out before us in Christ and yet still I have to ask myself, why do I choose not to get well? Why do I choose not to engage in the resurrection to the fullest extent at which it is offered to me in my life? Why do I choose sin over the healing that is available to me? And this man who's been laying there for 38 years is inflicted with the original sin that brings itself into the world and ails all of us and all the other intentional and purposeful sins that he has chosen his entire life. And he is us laying there And what's worse in this whole passage, the part that scares me the most, is his spiritual blindness is worse than his physical paralysis. He can't see who it is that's right in front of him asking this question. Do you want to get well? The king of kings has come down from heaven, is standing in front of him, giving basically a blank check on the one thing that's held him back. He believes from everything else in life. It's like if Jesus were to walk in here in this moment and be like, Dort College, what would you like me to do for you today? We'd be like, well, we kind of always wanted to move the piano over to that side of the stage, but we've just never really had the guts to break with our tradition. Like if that happened, don't you think we would have left a little something on the table? When all authority in heaven and earth stands and asks, do you want to get well? Can you hear his voice speaking of the darkest sins still left in your life? Do you want to get well? Do you want to experience what I have to offer? And how many of us aren't? We're dabbling around in the shallow pool of shallow end of the pool of grace. We slow play Jesus. We'll give him just the little stuff, the, the little things at a time, seeing if he'll prove himself to us there. And then if it goes okay, we'll go forward. We won't risk big enough. We won't dive into the deep end to really find out if the pool of grace has no bottom. And there are way too many Christians today who keep talking about their sins in their own head and keep coddling it like some sort of security blanket. We kick it down the road longer and longer. We keep kicking that can down the road. Some of us have gotten so good at this with sins in our life for so long, we can ball handle that can we're kicking down the road like Lionel Messi. We got moves for that thing. We keep moving it. And the voice asks, do you want to get well? It's not an insulting question. It's a legitimate one. Because look at the man's response that comes in the next verse. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me. That's not what Jesus asked him. He didn't say, is anybody else coming alongside of you? He just asked him, do you want to get well? He's been stuck in this for so long that he is enslaved to the sin that holds him captive. 
And in verse 7, you begin to get the feeling that almost willingly. Are there sins in your and my life that we are willingly still being held captive to? And the voice keeps saying, do you want to get well? And so we have to ask ourselves the question, do we actually hate our sin? Or do we kind of actually trust it more than we trust the voice that keeps asking us, do you want to get well? Now I know that the stakes are high because if any one of us in this room were to come forward with the worst things that we think and the deepest fears that we have, we always count the social cost first. But I want to show you by the time we get to the end of this passage, this is one of the most tragic healings that happens in the gospel of Jesus. I think it is the most tragic healing. Let me show you. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me. Into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. He's gotten so good at playing the victim. Not sure he wants to get well. And he can't see the one who's in front of him asking it. But Jesus says to him anyways, and isn't this interesting? Normally it says, and they had faith, or they come to Jesus. What we're going to see is a turn in this passage. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in most healing stories, in fact, as far as I can tell, all of them, everybody comes to Jesus. But whenever Jesus comes to somebody and heals them, it doesn't ask them if they want to be healed. It doesn't ask them if, if they have faith. It doesn't ask them if they believe in him as the Son of Man. But instead just kind of um, provokes and, and enters in. It's every time it's on a Sabbath. Jesus is provocative on the Sabbath. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the time when he doesn't wait for people to come to him. He goes to them. And then Jesus said to him, with the same authority as the voice that will say to him, chapters later, walking out of a tomb, get up. Out of your prison of death, out of the sin that has held you captive, Jesus says, get up. With the same authority over life and over all creation that he has as the throne in heaven, as his Father will say to him as he raises him from the dead and calls him out of the tomb, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. But the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. Sabbath was so important to the Jewish leaders. Sabbath, circumcision, and keeping kosher laws. This is what defined you. The Mishnah is a rabbi, rabbi collection of commentaries on the scriptures that gets codified shortly after the death of Jesus. Within that, having been developed through the Old Testament times and what has already arisen at this point in time, the rabbis, the teachers of the law, the, the Jewish leaders have 39 separate categories. Not 39 laws, 39 separate categories of laws of what you can and cannot do on a Sabbath and how you kept them and whether you were circumcised and how you ate was your physical definition of being able to tell the rest of the world, we're better than you are. It became a point of pride and of definition, and Jesus goes after it. Why does Jesus go after the Sabbath? Why does Jesus choose the Sabbath in order to go after? When he actually picks people to heal them rather than waiting until they come to him. Why on the Sabbath? It was belief that in the eschatological times, when the final coming of Yahweh would come and everything would be restored, that there would be no more Sabbath. 
because we would be able to enter into his rest. There is a profound statement that Jesus is trying to make to the people of Israel, to all who are longing for rest. For every heart that ever longed for something or someone that could be able to say to it, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened and hate your sin and can't stand the pain that it inflicts in your life, come to me and I will will give you rest. Jesus is the embodiment of rest, the one who was there through all things were created all seven days. And now that day of rest comes to visit them in the person. And he's offering this man a rest in him beyond a restlessness that he's ever known inside of his paralysis. How odd to be restless inside a paralysis. The day in which this took place was a Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Do you get the idea in here that they're kind of focusing on the wrong thing? Somebody that everybody had seen publicly paralyzed for 38 years is getting up and walking and all we can talk about is what he's carrying. It's like if somebody was walking by naked outside through the middle of campus and be like, I've never seen that hairstyle before. (laughs) Like that kind of misses the point. They're so focused in on their self-righteousness that they can't understand the righteousness that can be imputed to them through Christ. And the man missed the point. He didn't even chase Jesus down. He doesn't learn his name. I would think that if someone healed me after being lame for 38 years, I might want to get to know him a little bit because that's got to be a pretty cool guy. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. There's a deflection, again, pushing the blame somewhere else. Everybody else gets in ahead of me, that other guy. So they asked him, who is this fellow that told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed, they had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him. Here's Jesus again, seeking him out. Later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. And now here's, I think, one of the most terrifying lines in the Gospels. Stop sinning, or something worse might happen to you. Jesus is effectively saying paralysis was only the beginning. It was a small problem compared to a greater thing at stake right now for you. Physical healing is one thing. Improving the conditions around you in your life is one thing. But there's something inside of your soul that's so much bigger than all of this right now. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. But the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Something worse did happen to him. The answer to all of his longings and all of his healings is right in front of him. He doesn't even take the time to learn his name until it's time to sell him out. And he passes him off. And he doesn't enjoy Jesus for who he is. And he never becomes hungry for the kingdom of God. And something worse happens to him. Apparently, according to Jesus, you can gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. Apparently, you can seek to protect your own life and yet lose it in the process. And so when Jesus asks us the question, do you want to get well? 
He ain't playing. I don't know what it is that you long to get well from. I don't know what it is that the Holy Spirit speaks to us in those moments. The things that cause your deepest anxieties, the stuff that hurts you the most. But can you hear the voice of God saying, do you want to get well? And I know that that's a terrifying moment, but this guy at the end of the story is more interested in impressing the leaders around him and finding favor in their eyes than he is in receiving healing from Jesus. How many of you in this room are more afraid of the eyes of people or what they might say if you came forward with that which is holding you back from experiencing the next level of Jesus? How many of you are afraid to come forward and get rid of that thing in your life because you're afraid the bar of expectation might rise? How many of us have been paralyzed for so long that we refuse to see the opportunity of a resurrection when it's right in front of us? My friends, when those moments come, we cannot let them pass us by. Seize those moments. And when there is an opportunity to come and get rid of something, to vomit the blackness outside of us, to confess our sins to one another, which is not a command to shame us, but to set us free. It is an invitation to taste Jesus in a way that you never have before. To sit at a table and enjoy wine that was made from water. To drink from a well that is living water that will become welling up into you even unto eternal life. That's the offer that starts getting made in this gospel in the person of Jesus. And so I ask you, do you want to get well? I'm going to ask the band to come on up and lead us in a time of singing. I'm going to ask the guys upstairs to pull some of the lights down for us a little bit, and then I've asked a bunch of friends to be up front here with me. And while we sing, if God is saying anything to you this morning, because there's a moment in life for you happening today, maybe you need to do that quietly where you're standing, but if you really need to just get that out and be able to talk to somebody, or you want prayer for something, um, there's a whole bunch of us going to be on up front while we're singing. Don't worry about crossing in front of people in front of you. We all got grace for each other. We all want to see the world get well because we all long for that in Christ. And every one of us here is so, so broken and in need of that. But if you need to talk with somebody about that, you want to pray with that while we're singing our next two songs, come on forward. I would love to share in that prayer with you. And I got a bunch of friends who would too. Will you stand and sing with us? And join me, and join me in prayer. God, we thank you for the gift of the freedom of life that comes in you. We thank you for the questions that you pierce our heart with when you ask us, do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be free from that burden? God, even in the places within us where we lack the strength to say yes, we ask that your spirit would empower us to say yes. Father, help us come clean. Help us to learn what it's like to dance and be righteous in front of you. And for all those here who came with a heavy heart, longing for that in their own way and in their own life. Father, comfort them and allow them in a new way maybe today than ever before to enter into your rest. For your invitation still stands. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I and I alone can give you what your soul longs for. 
Father, we reject the lies of the evil one and the lies he's told us, the filters that are placed over our eyes and the spiritual blindness that so easily enslaves us and set us free in Jesus' name. Amen.